when we began the sitting this evening and I invited you to just sense the experience of sitting and breathing, feeling, thinking. It um, just reminded me and reinforced the sense that this is all kind of miraculous, unexplainable. Just the fact that we can see and hear and smell and taste and feel and think and the fact that these sounds that are coming out of my mouth, you can actually, at least in some cases, understand. That's incredible. And that as I was sitting here feeling my own wonderfulness, <laughs> I was seeing all of your wonderfulness, just the wonder of of being. Just that simple sense of being. Something that it is not possible to really explain, but it is definitely something that can be felt, experienced. A sense of awe and wonder at the our very existence. And how it's so possible to discover when we simply feel this wonder-filled experience of, of simplicity, of just opening to the, the bare experience of our sense doors, our, our doors of perception. We can all have the experience the direct experience, not based on memory of ourselves. Not the idea of ourselves, that's one thing, but the direct experience of ourselves. And I think it's so, such a great blessing that we can discover in this very life, in the span of this life, with all its, as that one story I read, with its 83 um, problems. You know, we all have 83 problems, the story goes. We, the very definition of birth is the leading cause of 83 problems. Stress, Mental pain, physical pain, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get. Birth, sickness, old age, you know, the whole thing. 83. And then, of course, the, the only one that the Buddha can really help us with, can't really help us with the 83 problems. The Buddha can only help us with the 84th problem. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. But in spite of the 83 problems that, every, that everyone experiences, we can, in the very span of all these problems, right in the middle of it all, discover 
a, an experience, uh, a reality, where we are uh, perfect, just the way we are. Perfectly ourselves, perfectly present, perfectly connected, perfectly imperfect, which means perfectly experiencing the suchness of sadness, happiness, joy, sorrow, fear, just the, the perfectness of it. That before it filters through the, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, the personality view, that says, this means that I am, that something's amiss. This means this about me. This means I am good, I am better, I am best, I am more than, equal to, or less than. Something's wrong, something's wrong with me. Before our mind can do that, we have this extraordinary capacity to taste the reality of our perfection because the other version, you know I like to talk about this, the other version, how high, how low, the measuring mind, always measuring, that version, the kind that's comparing, the one that says something's wrong with me, that is actually a description of somebody who doesn't exist. That's the, the virtual you. The one that's made up innocently by, by many, by all those 83 problems that were hard to bear. Those 83 problems that are hard to bear produce, and one of the problems is uh, the, the extraordinary pleasant experiences that are available the other side of it is the extraordinarily unpleasant experiences. Well, these pleasant and unpleasant experiences, and also neutral experiences, have inherent in them a certain, um, bring with them a certain feeling, and a feeling of um, a reaction. Every time we have one of these, there, there comes a reaction. And that reaction creates a little internal sense of, of a charge, a little, in a sense, a little dis-ease. This is happening a thousand times a minute, really, or a thousand times a day. We're having these pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. They're producing a little charge, and something feels amiss. And instead of just feeling the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neutralness of our sense, of all our different sense experiences, which we all have, it's part of the part of what comes with the territory, instead of feeling that, recognizing that these pleasant experiences come, they go, the unpleasant ones come and go, the neutral ones come and go, instead of actually feeling them, that charge creates a little disease and because of a lack of, of mindfulness, a lack of knowing, a lack of comprehension of what's happening, that little charge creates some pressure and we feel a little bit unstable, a little bit uncertain, a little bit insecure, and we often go immediately not to that feeling of, 
of being off, being a little bit in a state of charge. We don't actually feel the charge. Instead, we go off into our imagination, go off that it produces a kind of compulsion to think. And we go into the tangle of, as Rumi called it, the tangle of fear thinking. And so he reminds us in a lot of his poetry, and in one in particular, he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? And when I think of the door being wide open, it's the door in any moment where we actually wake up to this miracle, this unexplainable miracle of just being right here. Nobody could ever really explain just the fact of us together here tonight. It's a kind of wow in a way. Not based on some other experience, but just the, the immediacy of it all. That's the door is so wide open. This is the field, a, a creative field of possibility, this instant right here. It's not, it's not fixed in any way. It's just wide open. So he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So he wants to, he's saying, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is available to you. The door is wide open. It's, it's miraculous right here. That's why my favorite, uh, one of my favorite poems that I think, I, you know, this is part of what comes with leading a group every Tuesday for almost every Tuesday for 26 years is there's a lot of repetition. I like to think of myself as a one-note one note Johnny. I'd say the same thing over and over again. But I'd say what I think is important to say. But in the repetition, this poem has been repeated many times by the wonderful poet named David Budbill called Bugs in a Bowl. He's speaking the same, similar language as Rumi. He says, Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled poet, Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. All of these teachings remind us, as Emerson said, who we are, who you are. Shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. 
who you are, shout so loud I can't hear what you say. Because what we are saying over and over is, I'm not wonderful. I'm not good enough. I'm too much, too little. I'm high, high, I'm low. I'm some, some kind of flaw. But in all the 26 years, I've never found anybody that, mat- that matches that description. I just have not. I, I can, every week, I get the pleasure of looking at you, being with you. I know that I, I see your, as we call it, your Buddha nature, your divinity. You are, what's that passage from the movie Eat, Pray, Love? The divine is in you, as you. Wherever you, wherever life, you're touching life and life is touching you, that is. That's it, right here. Now how does that, whatever that experience is right now, before you consult your memory, now how, how does that compare to the the narrative that's been running through your mind today about you and your life, your situation. What? Any difference? As Rumi also says in one of his poems, it's funny, when you look down, there's the right one. At least I think it's the right one. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. As Hakuin Zenji put it, all beings by nature are Buddha. As ice by nature is water. Apart from water, no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar, like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst, or a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor, lost on dark paths of ignorance, delusion. We wander through worlds from dark path to dark path. When shall we be freed from this cycle? Oh, meditation. Remembering, to this the highest praise. Those who meditate even once, which means those who are present even once, wipe away beginningless crimes. He goes on, where are all the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here, before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, 
the Buddha. So you can, in this span of even just a few minutes together, just being together and reminding ourselves of our of our wonderfulness before we can consult our memory that reminds us of all of our flaws, that imaginary version of us, we can all taste. Maybe even tonight you got a little taste of yourself outside of the tangle of your fear thinking. You may be captured for a moment or sensed for a moment your... Uh, your, what I like to think of as enoughness, your sufficiency, your, what I often call you, your molliness, since my daughter Molly is, is, was my guru in teaching me about, about how each person is so essentially and wholly themselves and so not reducible to all these insulting characterizations that we make about ourselves. She is just pure molliness, as you are each pure yourself, uh, expressing life in the only and unique way that you can, given all the forces, some of them very painful forces, trauma and misinformation and so much of the, I just think of the misinformation about so much misinformation about where we can actually find happiness. Now, it's all about uh, keeping greedy and going out of our search. Who was it? Uh, maybe it's Rumi again. He, in his poem, he says, Inside this new love, die. Die to now. He says, Your way begins on the other side. Your life has been an endless running from silence. Slide out the side and die. Be dead. Silence is a sure sign that you died. The speechless full moon comes out now. Our culture, minds, are constantly trained to be in a state of desire or, or paranoia or worry. Our culture of hungry ghosts, beings with little mouths and huge stomachs. Uh, that's our conditioning. But that doesn't, uh, and all that has shaped us. But at our at our core, at our essence, we are uh, we are pure molliness. We are purely ourselves. And I, I wish I could I could spend an, I could spend hours trying to elaborate on on that what I call molliness. But my f- immediate frame of reference is what I see. I just came back from leading a retreat on the East Coast. There is a reason why I'm talking about all this tonight, and I'll get to it. <laughs> but I, was, I just came back from the East Coast, and as I often feel at the end of leading a retreat, because I've see, I see on the retreat everybody comes in, and their bodies are all... Their eyes are all squinty, and faces tight, and... Everything is kind of tucked in and tight sphincters. And <laughs> Now, how do I know that? I, I don't know that. <laughs> Nevertheless, people, there, there's the outer manifestation of what I, I imagine is going on in parts I can't see. 
<laughs> but the conditions of the retreat are such that there is a there is a uh, training uh, there are some training guidelines uh, there's a commitment that everyone makes to practice non-harming in the atmosphere of a retreat and hopefully people carry over this practice of non-harming in their daily life both the practice of non-harming for oneself not killing not stealing not being not engaging in any kind of exploitive sexual behavior on the retreat not taking intoxicants that cloud the the mind and lead to confusion and heedlessness and and not uh, not lying to ourselves and to each other not being harsh in our speech just basic training guidelines they are people practice them themselves and they offer those same they offer the protection of the training guidelines to the other people on the retreat so everyone begins to settle in to uh, an increasing sense of safety. Not everybody feels safe because we have old residue of some of the very innocently feeling that we are not safe and from, for a variety of reasons. But given the conditions of safety, a real sense of safety, as much as they can be created from the outside, given the conditions of silence, given the conditions of, of not, um, not taking on the same amount of sensory stimulation that we, are, that we do, every do every day, taking a media fast, which I think would do everyone good as part of your 100-day retreat, at least for uh, a portion of it, Maybe the whole hundred days. I'll guarantee you the world will not change so much while, you're, while you've unplugged. Anyway, the result of these conditions that people begin to settle back into, open to their immediate experience. They begin to find, once again, a sense of natural presence start to get a little glimpse of that miracle of just being, just breathing, just being present. And as someone who leads a lot of these retreats, I get the benefit of seeing what happens in people's whole organism. There is, a, there is this magnificent softening of the heart, tenderizing. We're not imposing anything. All that's being taken away is a lot of the regular stresses of our life, and each person to a person starts reclaiming, recovering their version, your version of, of molliness, of just, ah, just being myself, enough to be myself. For one, for a little bit of time, not trying to be anyone else, thinking I should be anyone else, hoping I'm someone else, expecting to be something else, having my experience that should be some other way, but just being with things in their simplicity as they are. And the light that starts to shine through each person's eyes, it's, it's remarkable. I feel as though I'm receiving a blessing. And each week when I can, if this is my experience, when I get your attention... And you, and I see that you orienting yourself more to here, 
here and now rather than there and then, I see that same light come into all of your eyes. I see it even in the span of a little evening. I see that all you need is to be pointed. All, and that's what the Buddha said. He saw that there were those with just a little dust. And if they were pointed back to their immediate and direct experience, coming out of that tangle of fear thinking and living in silence... And when I say live in silence, it doesn't mean you have to leave your job or leave your life. It means in the middle of it all, wake up to where you are. This is the whole purpose of having a daily practice, is to reconnect, reconnect, reconnect. And we fortunately have the one ingredient available to us, the secret ingredient, there are two, I'm thinking of two ingredients right now, but the most important ingredient that we have is what the Buddha called sati, this little, what's called a mental factor, this little factor that's part of a, a group of, that's part of, we hope it's part, that it shows up as part of a, a little group of happenings that happen every moment. This, is the, this will be the second of two little technical parts of this evening. Every moment there is contact with some, some door for some sense experience. There's a feeling tone that I talked about before. There's also perception that comes in every moment. Perception is based on memory, but it's basically be able to kind of sense what something is that's happening. Perception is required. And then there are two more things. There's consciousness. That consciousness just registers that there's some experience. And then there's what's called uh, mental formations. So we've got contact, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness arising every single instant with every single sense experience. That's how it is. And we talk about them as separate things, but they arise as a kind of inseparable whole. And sometimes you can highlight one or the other. But the mental, the, the fourth, what's called the fourth skanda, mental formation, that is, the, that is the piece of every moment's experience, depending on what arises in that fourth little thing, depending what's, what kind of mental formation shows up, what kind of, what's the, the word often used is, what kind of mental factor shows up? For example, if the mental factor of greed shows up in that moment, hatred or delusion in the form of, of identifying with something, saying, this is me, this is mine, generally some kind of suffering will follow. If, on the other hand, if in the, that little moment of experience, the mental formation has what the Buddha called non-greed, or renunciation, or some quality of, of non-greed, generosity, non-hatred, kindness, goodwill, compassion, caring, or non-delusion, which means seeing clearly, just not not adding a whole identity view to what's happening, just the, the bare experience of it. Then if it's, if it's a wholesome mental factor, we, 
we tend to have less suffering. So this is just a reminder that it's useful in your life in general to cultivate, to actually cultivate, arouse, and maintain wholesome mental factors, factors of non-greed, non-hatred, non-ignorance. Just spread the generosity, spread the uh, contentment, spread the goodwill, loving kindness, compassion, grow it every day in your life and maintain it. And if you do, that fourth little piece called the mental formations will, uh, will be part of a process that leads toward more sense of well-being. Now, there's one mental factor that is, has the function of making all of them, uh, that purifying or lightening the load of all of anything that happens to show up in your experience. And that is the mental factor called mindfulness or sati. That capacity, that moment of having whatever shows up be accompanied with comprehension, a knowing, this is what's happening right now. This is greed, this is hatred, this is ignorance, this is hate, this is frustration, this is contentment, this is, this is grief, this is sorrow. If there is a comprehension that shows up called mindfulness, if you know what's happening, then in that moment where there's comprehension, how can I say this? You, unst- you are no longer just carried along by the cycle of whatever's going on. You, you've actually unplugged. You've become free to move about the country. You've come back to that open field of creative possibility. You have come back to silence. You've come back because that sati, that pure knowing of what's happening, that sati is dead silent. It is completely open, without limits, no height, no depth, no color, no shape. It's free. It's open. So that little moment, if that sati shows up, that little mindfulness shows up in that instant, you're, you're back on track. Clearly, in the teachings, the Buddha asks us, cultivate and maintain sati. Cultivate mindfulness over and over. Why do we do a 100-day retreat? So that we can increase the likelihood. It's not, it's, it's not absolutely certain. You never know when mindfulness is going to show up. We can wander a long time confused, just lost in a dream about ourselves as the miserable one, as the, as the insufficient one. Any of you ever done that? If mindfulness shows up, you go, oh, look at, I'm, I'm getting lost in this story about myself. Oh, that's a story. A thought of myself is not myself. It's, a, it's just a story. It's just a thought. But if, I, if that quality of comprehension, I'm just caught in, in the narrow little world of my thinking, the narrow vortex of suffering, instead of that wider gravitational field of creative possibility. So you really want to encourage sati to show up. So from the moment we get up in the morning, we should be tuning in. Okay, what's happening now? When we get out of our bed, if you can, you want to notice what your movements are. You want to do maybe a little quickie before you get out of bed. I think I talked about those last week. Quickie. 
connect with your body, connect with your breath. What's happening in my body right now? Ah, what's the mood? What's the state of my heart right now? Ah, what's in my thoughts right now? Check in. If you've done that, you've created a little field of openness. You've stepped out of your personal you've stepped out of your personal hell of your your view of yourself, your story, and you've now you can move. You're free. At least for that moment. What happens if you do this all day long? When you're walking down the hall at work, when you're walking down the street, when you're sitting on the Muni, when you're when you're driving your car. Driving, driving, no I'm driving. I'm not back there, I'm not so toppling forward about where I'm I'm gonna be a little safer driver if I'm here. I may, in the process, realize that no matter where I go, I haven't gone anywhere. I've been right where I am. And that I've never gone anywhere. And that I've always been right here. I only imagine that I went somewhere. That was my body that went there. I was always right here. My imagination was everywhere but here. So we start to have that sati show up. We come out of the tangle of fear thinking. We live in silence. And we start to flow down and down into a, a passionate embracing of, of the present. As the words of Sri Nisargadatta says, when the mind is free of its preoccupations, doesn't mean it's not having preoccupations, but it's noticing them. When it's free with its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll see that that quiet is permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you'll recognize it at once as your own nature. You'll be at home again. As Derek Walcott says, the time will come with with elation. You will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Now, how far do you have to travel to sit and feast on your life? Split second, half breath away. Anyway, I'll get back to Nisargadatta. When your mind is kept away from its preoccupation, it becomes quiet. If you don't disturb that quiet, you remain in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known yet. You recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've tasted that, you'll never be the same person again. The unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken, grasping and attachment ends, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. This is why we practice, too. Because we do, we are, and maybe you discover tonight what you are outside of the tangle of fear thinking. But we do 
That unruly mind breaks our peace continuously and obliterates our vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained. That's why we practice. And it's always, I found it always useful to remember those moments when I have stepped out of the tangle of fear thinking, when I've really connected with the, my basic okayness. Not just okayness, the miraculousness of myself and you, the miraculousness of you, which is really not so separate when I'm actually feeling it. It's very useful to have touched that because I know that my practice of mindfulness and mindful attention is not really to get anywhere. It's really all about reclaiming, rediscovering what's already here. That line that I share so often from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. Stop referring to the past to define you. It will not work. It'll just cause you misery. Stop referring to the past. Stop referring to the future. Hold only to this moment. And that doesn't mean you don't plan. Planning takes place here. It doesn't mean you don't vision, you don't create, you don't strategize. All that happens here. You don't have to leave here to handle everything in your life. Just don't refer to your memory to define yourself or what you don't have. Embrace this moment as it is. It's not so difficult, but remembering is sometimes difficult. So let's just sit a moment. From Hafiz, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. So in this moment where we stop being so religious, we can appreciate uh, that there, by doing this together tonight, we may have uh, given ourselves some kind of uh, blessing, some kind of uh, goodness, some kind of benefit. And we often like to consider at this time that 
if there has been any goodness, any blessings, any benefit, any anything helpful that has arisen from our practice together, that we freely give it away. We give it away to all the beings that we share this universe with, this earth, all the creatures, all the creatures of the land, creatures of the air, creatures of the sea, all the humans, all the beings seen and unseen, that we give the blessings of our practice and our life to all beings everywhere, remembering that we don't exist ourselves alone apart from everyone. And we send the blessings of our practice, radiate it in all directions with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness in their lives and the causes of happiness growing and maintaining. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. And a deep wish that all beings can recognize that miraculous beauty that you are here and now and not look for anything but this anywhere else. And a deep wish that all beings can develop a mountain-like serenity and equanimity able to meet the 83 problems, able to meet the joys and the sorrows, things, beings, circumstances near and afar with much more equanimity and less reactivity. And a deep wish, again, that our life and practice be, today and every day, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of others. May all beings be free and live with ease and a sense of well-being. Thanks for listening. I was quite determined to have a question and answer session, so apologize once again. I just got rolling, and and it's not my fault. I'm not my fault, <laughs> and you're not your fault. Anyway, just a reminder that this room costs us a, a grand total of six hundred dollars a month, one hundred and fifty a week. Any support for the room rental called Room Rental Donna, the practice of generosity, much appreciated. And you can do that in several different ways, either by cash in the basket, making checks out to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church, putting Mission Dharma at the bottom. That makes it tax deductible. There, You can go on our website and uh, do it through PayPal to Mission Dharma. And any uh, teaching that's offered is also offered in the spirit of generosity. If you feel to respond with generosity, uh, I'm here because you've supported me before and I'll go to the next place because you support me now and this and that and that's how it's gone for 2,500 years and so if you feel to practice generosity as I do um, thanks for your support in advance and all goes in the basket and um, thanks for your practice most of all and hope to see you next week and keep up with your 100 day retreat 
And I think that I would like to propose, even though I didn't think this out very well, but I'd like to propose that next week at 7 p.m., at 7 p.m., uh, those of you who want to check in about your 100-day retreat will have about a 15-minute check-in before other people start to drift in. 7 o'clock right here. Uh, and uh, we'll, do, we'll just check in. We'll have a little Q&A and, and then we'll have a normal evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.